back to uh, part two of our Shroud series in uh, Dale's study class. Uh, last time we addressed a brief introduction on what the Shroud of Turin is. Uh, we also addressed the dating issue, uh, whether or not uh, the Shroud's date of origin is even relevant, uh, as well as critiquing the uh, infamous 1988 radiocarbon-14 results, which uh, placed the Shroud uh, somewhere in the 1300s AD. Now, I mentioned in, that, in part one that there are at least 12 different dating evidences, uh, or what I'm going to call historical anchor points, which can place the Shroud earlier back than what the radiocarbon-14 dating would allow, and all of which are consistent with a first century date during the time of Jesus. So that's what part two is going to do. We're going to start uh, focusing on analyzing what some of these uh, historical anchor points are. Uh, largely, that's going to be done in reverse chronological order. Now, just as a, a quick note, um, I, I have had to quite considerably select which topics or evidences I'm going to focus on. So in this podcast, I'm going to focus on three of the more prominent ones, which can date the Shroud back to the 6th um, or possibly 5th centuries AD. However, there, there's so much evidence out there that, uh, you know, that it helps the pro-Shroud proponent case that I am uh, selecting out uh, some of the other arguments and that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll provide some information on those in, in the sources so you can do your own research on that. But yeah, without further ado, uh, let's get into the first historical evidence or anchor point. And, and this is comes from what's called the Hungarian Prey Codex or the, the Hungarian Prey Manuscript. And what this is, it's a collection of medieval manuscripts uh, which are currently housed in Budapest. And uh, these manuscripts date from the Years 1192 to 1195 AD. Um, so this is a full uh, century and a half earlier than the carbon-14 results uh, or dating of the shroud from those results. So what's interesting about the Hungarian Prey Codex is it has uh, certain images within it which point to the Shroud of Turin as actually being the archetype or the creation of these images in this manuscript. So uh, what are we talking about here? There, there are various odd elements uh, in the manuscript's images which suggest some sort of association with the Shroud of Turin. Um, so some of these elements include, in terms of uh, the image of Jesus himself, there's there's a clear mark on Jesus' forehead. And this is, this is not something you would expect an artist to just create um, artistically, for artistic reasons or cultural reasons. It's, I'm referring to a small, odd, triangular-shaped wound on Jesus' forehead. Um, also, Jesus is shown naked. This was not a usual practice at that time. Usually, Jesus has some kind of clothing to you know cover his modesty. Um, also, Jesus has his arms crossed with his right arm over top of his left uh, in order and, and crossed at the wrists. And also, the fingers of Jesus are unusually long with no visible thumbs. This is exactly like what we have with the Shroud of Turin. Furthermore, in the lower panel of the Codex, uh, we get some uh, information uh, about the cloth itself. So, for example, the pious women who are depicted at the uh, Holy Sepulchre, the tomb with the angel, um, are shown with an empty tomb, with an empty shroud. So the body is hinted that it's gone. It, this is Jesus' burial shroud. The angel also appears to be specifically pointing at a swirl of cloth, which could possibly be the binding strip that bound the body to the shroud. And this, this refers to stirp scientist John Jackson and uh, textile experts have discovered that there is 
this uh, strip that's been re-sewn back onto the shroud, and I, I think it, it's pretty conclusive. It runs the entire length of the shroud there, and this was really discovered um, back in 2002 with the shroud uh, preservation project that took place. And what's interesting is one of the experts, the, the lead textile expert, Dr. Metchild Fleury Lemberg, noticed that there was a similar hem with similar stitching discovered in the tombs of the Jewish fortress of Masada from anywhere between 40 BC and 73 AD. Um, so that, that would hint at a, a first century origin there, uh, or is at least consistent with it. There's also another argument that there's red crosses, and these are interpreted as being re representing blood stains that are found on the shroud. This is, I think this is rather inconclusive. This is more of a weak, uh, a weak argument to make. But now we come to the final one, and this is the strongest, this is what clinches it for me. Uh, and this is the fact that there are four distinct small circles drawn into the cloth in the, the pattern of an L shape. And, and the cloth itself also has a Z-twist pattern or a herringbone-like weave, similar to what we see on the shroud. But it, I want to focus again on these, L, these holes that are in the shape of the L. They're, they're known in shroud circles as the poker holes. And it, it basically, in, on the shroud, it's... Uh, postulated that at some point in the Shroud's history, prior to its known history in Europe, it was folded in four. And they, th they thought someone stuck a poker in it to cause these holes. But um, today, we, we now more think that what happened is hot incense fell on the cloth and then fell through, creating holes to various degrees um, of the shroud. It's interesting that this prey codex has the precise matching holes corresponding to the proper location of where it's found on the shroud. And this is not something that we would expect to find on two, two seemingly separate or independently made shroud images. Now, uh, just to quote again, the textile authority, in her expert opinion, Methchild Fleury Lindberg, who again led the 2002 preservation project for the shroud, has stated that, in her opinion, the painter of this picture of the, of the codex must have seen the Shroud of Turin. Otherwise, it's not possible not even possible because it contains exactly the same signs that we find on the shroud. You know, this is incredible evidence. And it, it like I said, for me, on a balance of probabilities, this cinches it. This, this, this guy that made this manuscript must have had access to the shroud. Now, I can see at this point some various skeptics and critics coming out. And, um, you know, there have been some counters to the evidence from the Hungarian Prey manuscript. Namely, they, they say, well, okay, what this manuscript is representing isn't actually a burial shroud, but it's a, a rectangular tombstone on which Jesus is uh, being, re uh, being represented as lying on. Uh, and this has some precedent in that there are other images of, of rectangular tombstones uh, in other parts of the manuscript. Furthermore, they, they also claim that the, cod the codex doesn't actually contain any bloodstains, and the burial cloth doesn't actually have any body images on it, like the shroud. And finally, they're, they're most devastating. With regards to the hole, the L-shaped holes, which I think is the strongest evidence, um, they just say, well, this is just decorative elements. Because if you look on the angel's wing in the picture, he has the exact same hole-like designs as part of a decorative design on his wings. However, again, I, I don't, while well, some of these critiques are, uh, are uh, persuasive and, you know, in terms of it not being blood, I don't think it's conclusive there. I don't think this is a strong argument to use to connect the dots between the manuscript and the shroud. But 
with regards to the L-shaped holes, um, like I said, textile ex- all textile experts agree that it's impossible. No, that these L-shaped holes, it's just too coincidental. It's not a decorative pattern. These are in precisely the same configuration as what's seen on the shroud's L-shaped burn hole, uh, and in roughly the exact same location as where these holes are placed on the shroud. This is just too coincidental for a reasonable person to think is plausible. Um, And therefore, I think on a balance of probabilities, I think we can say that uh, as of 1195, at the very latest, whoever painted this uh, codex had access or knew about the images of the Shroud of Turin. Now, what's interesting, if if we can get that, the the Byzantines had... um, were known in Constantinople for having an image of God incarnate or, or the uh, Mandy, what they called the Mandy line as well, which represented, which shroud historians say was Jesus. And this was known to have been in Constantinople from at least 944 AD until 1204 AD with the Fourth Crusade. So they postulate that the Hungarian king, who was named Bela III, uh, was actually in Constantinople from 1164 to 1172 AD. And during this time, he was being considered as a uh, designate for the next Byzantine emperor. So in that capacity, he would have had access to this image of God incarnate, which uh, we're linking as actually being the Shroud of Turin. And it was from there that he and the artists uh, that uh, went to went back to Hungary after he was rejected as being an emperor. That's where they saw the shroud and then got the idea to paint that in the Hungarian Prey Codex. Just to summarize the evidence or conclusions that we can get from the Prey Codex, number one, I think it very probably shows that the Shroud of Turin dates at, ma- at uh, the very latest to 1195 AD. And you know what? Perhaps the Shroud Skeptic may even be willing to accept this because uh, this isn't how you read. Uh, the, the radiocarbon-14 scientists date it to you know, 1325, somewhere in the 1300s. But let's, let's uh, be very charitable to the skeptic, even to the point of uh, at the expense of science. And let's say, okay, uh, well, the carbon-14 gave us from 1260 to 1390 AD. Let's take the lower bound. Then they also have plus or minus 65 years. Well, if you do 1260 minus 65, that gives you 1195. So, you know, if we're being extremely charitable and, and allow the, the shroud skeptic to grasp its straws, um, they can get to this 1195. They might be able to accept the Prey Codex and say, yep, okay, the Shroud was around and, and uh, was an inspiration for this Prey Codex as of 1195 AD. However, I think uh, it's, it's possible to draw some other conclusions as well. So the first is that if this is true, then that would mean the Shroud of Turin's images were seen as authoritative representations, so much so that a, an emperor candidate and a, a king within the Eastern Orthodox Church you know, outside of Catholic Europe, saw these images as rep- as an authoritative representation of Jesus and allowed them to serve as the inspiration for his images in his manuscript. And it could be that this is suggestive of an earlier proven- provenance for the Shroud prior to 1054 AD, because in 1054 we had what was called the Great Schism between the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Roman Catholic Church. It's also known as the East-West Schism. They, they broke apart. So one might try to argue, well, it's unlikely that a Hungarian king, a king within the Eastern Orthodox Church, would accept some Catholic relic that just popped on the scene recently and, and didn't have an established provenance within Eastern Orthodox. 
However, I would say this type of argument, it's very, it's not conclusive. It is, you know, merely suggestive that maybe there's a hint that it might date further back. But if we're just going to go as an anchor point, the anchor point is we can get it to the year 1195 and that it, the Shroud of Turin was seen as authoritative, not just in the Catholic Europe, but within the Eastern Orthodox Church as well. Before moving on to the next historical anchor point or anchor evidence, I think it's important to note that there is a, a historical gap or a gap in our historical knowledge. If uh, I can if I've established the link between, through the Prey Manuscript that the Shroud of Turin it was indeed this image of God incarnate or Mandelion or image of Edessa that the Byzantines had in Constantinople up to 1204 when it vanished, then we have this gap between 1204 AD and 1355 where to be quite frank, we, we just we don't really know where where the Shroud of Turin was or how exactly it ended up in the hands of Geoffrey de Charny when he displayed it in Leary, France in the year 1355. So what I want to give is just some suggestions. We, we can't prove any of these suggestions are true, but there are various scenarios that are plausible that pro-Shroud historians have given um, to account for where the Shroud was during this gap in, in our knowledge. Now, in the first place, we have to acknowledge that Geoffrey de Charny, and, or, nor his wife, nor his descendants, really shed any light on how they got the Shroud of Turin in their possession. The, the best we have is a statement from Geoffrey's son, Geoffrey II de Charny, who told us that the Shroud of Turin was quote-unquote, freely given to his dad. So to expand upon that, as I said, there are several historical hypotheses that have been offered, um, but there are three of these that are seem to be the best, or they've garnered the, mo the greatest attention. Um, and the first of these is called the uh, Bisankon hypothesis, and I probably pronounced that wrong, but um, basically it traces the Shroud of Turin through uh, Geoffrey de Charny's wife, Jean de Vergy, who, whose ancestor was a guy named Othon de la Roche. Um, he existed in the, the Fourth Crusade and uh, was present in 1204, so it's uh, stated that he stole the Shroud of Turin from Constantinople at that time and was promoted to being the Duke of Athens then eventually came came back to his hometown in Bichon, uh, France. Now it's it's interesting because some why why didn't he announce his uh, sh you know the presence of the Shroud of Turin or anything like that? And you have to understand the historical context. So at, at that time, Pope Innocent III was not best of friends with Othon or the the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade. He he condemned the sacking of Constantinople and the looting of all these Christian relics and gold and silver. He also convened the fourth. Lateran Council in 1215, making it illegal to sell any relics that were stolen from Constantinople. So this provides a plausible reason as to why no one announced their possession of having the, the Shroud of Turin or any other relics that were stolen from Constantinople at that time. So it is postulated that uh, the LaRoche family kept the Shroud of Turin in his castle and from there, it was brought to the marriage of Geoffrey de Charny uh, when he married uh, his wife, Jean, Jean de Vergy. And interestingly, there, there is some evidence, uh, perhaps, it's unconfirmed, but there, there is a 13th century coffer um, in which is preserved um, a modern label that reads, you know, this 13th century coffer in which was preserved in the castle of Ray, the Shroud of Christ brought by Othon de Ray, from Constantinople in 1206 AD. Secondly, we, we also have 
an interesting letter written by to the Pope, Innocent III, by Theodore Angelos, who was a nephew of one of the Byzantine emperors. In this letter, he was complaining about the crusading army having falsely uh, set out to liberate the Holy Land. Instead, they laid waste to the city of Constantine. And he complains that the Venetians partitioned the treasures of gold, silver, and ivory, while the French did the same with the relics of the, sa the saints, and most sacred of all, the linen of which our Lord Jesus Christ was wrapped after his death and before the resurrection. Of these sacred objects, we know they are preserved by their predators in Venice, in France, and in other places. As to the sacred linen, we know it is in Athens. Isn't that interesting? Othon de la Roche became the Duke of Athens immediately after the uh, Fourth Crusade. So, you know, there's these circumstantial evidences which seem to match up. However, there are problems with these evidences. There, there's been no forensic study of the wooden casket in, in um, the castle to confirm whether the shroud was there. The, also, there are some discrepancies as and controversies surrounding this letter that we have because we, we don't have the original. The earliest uh, copy we have was published in 1902, and therefore there's some controversy whether this is an authentic letter or not. Now, the second uh, hypothesis, and this is really the weakest of them, there's no circumstantial evidence at all for it, but it's called the saint Chappelle hypothesis, and it is plausible that this is the case. Um, you know, respect, respected Shroud researcher Mario Lentendresi advanced that the, the Mandelion, or this the Shroud of Turin in Constantinople, Constantinople was ceded to King Louis of France by Baldwin II, and this was originally kept in a reliquary uh, within the Saint Chapelle uh, Chapel in Paris, France. And eventually, because Geoffrey uh, de Charnay was such a good soldier, uh, the King of France freely gave uh, Geoffrey the Shroud of Turin. One little bit of circumstantial evidence that we have is that before, prior, just prior to the French Revolution, there was a final inventory taken of this church. And in which it said that the Mandelion cloth was no longer in its reliquary, obviously because under this hypothesis it was given to Geoffrey de Charny back in the 1300s. Uh, but apart from that, there's really nothing to suggest whether this is true or not, and I, I think it's... I don't take this hypothesis myself. So the final hypothesis is the Knights Templar hypothesis, and this is advanced by Shroud historian Ian Wilson in his book. And basically it just says that uh, while he admits it's totally tentative and provisional, he thinks that the Knights Templar gained possession through the Fourth Crusade of the Shroud of Turin, and eventually this ended up in Geoffrey uh, the first de Charny, uh, his father, Geoffrey de Charny. So, you know, there's three generations of Geoffrey de Charny's that had this shroud, and because uh, his dad was the Templar master of Normandy, and ultimately he was burned at the stake in 1314. But this is how Geoffrey the first de Charny, the one who first displayed the Shroud of Turin, how he got his hands on it through his dad and through the Knights Templar connection. But as I said, there's no explicit proof that this is true. It is tentative and provisional, but it, it's wholly plausible. It, it makes sense. Yeah, this is this is where the shroud was. It makes sense as to why it wasn't mentioned and kept hidden because uh, because of the Pope's dispensation that you're not allowed to sell any relics, so the Knights Templar would have kept it secret. And interestingly, uh, as circumstantial evidence for this, there are various panel paintings of the holy face of Jesus that uh, the Knights Templar is known to have, to have painted. And 
you know, they people want to say, well, that's similar to the faces seen on the Shroud of Turin. So overall, in, in conclusion, I think that the first hypothesis is probably the most likely, um, and then the Knights Templar hypothesis is the next best. And those, so those would be the two hypotheses that I would uh, go to in order to plug this historical gap in the record. As I mentioned before, moving on to our next historical anchor point, our second one, evident, line of evidence that puts the shroud earlier than the medieval era, and in this case, it's going to be by centuries. Basically, it's, I mentioned it's been historically documented that the Byzantines had, had claimed to house what they called the image of God incarnate, or the image of Edessa, or the Mandylion, and this is what we're claiming was actually the Shroud of Turin. And we know historically that they had this, the shroud, as of August 15th through 16th of 944 AD. They, they got it when they captured it on a military campaign against the Muslim-ruled city of Edessa during the summer of 943 AD. And what's interesting is that these uh, images were referred to in the, the Greek as a Cairo poeta, which basically means they were not made by human hands. Uh, and th these images were known to have existed in Edessa from around 540-550 AD. They were also described as being uncircumscribed images, so having no definable borders. Like when you paint a picture, it always has a definable border surrounding it. Um, but these images uh, were described as being uncircumscribed or non-bounded images, just like what, we, what we'll find out later uh, corresponds with the Shroud of Turin. Now, in the year 958 AD, the, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII actually sent a letter to rally his troops who were engaged in the area of Tarsus. And in his letter, he specifically mentions the Empire's possession of this uh, passion relic uh, known as the sacred linens or the image of God incarnate and you know he mentions that this this sindon which is uh, another word for a shroud uh, which God wore and the other symbols of the immaculate passion were available so it's documented that these images did exist and all the way back to the 10th century now the uncircumscribed bit it is interesting because it was actually this that uh, saved the images from the great iconoclastic uh, crises that took place during the Dark Ages in uh, the, Eastern North, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, so, you know, so certain uh, Eastern leaders appealed to the fact that the image, um, what we're calling the, um, what uh, we feel is the Shroud of Turin, uh, it wasn't circumscribed like other paintings or images of Christ and therefore shouldn't be destroyed. And it actually worked as a technique. But getting into the actual evidence itself now, so in terms of obviously certain images were copied off of these, uh, you know, these uncircumscribed images. Other paintings uh, use these as inspiration. And in a similar vein to how we argued with the Prey Codex, we have various paintings going back all the way from the 6th century up until the 12th century. And several shroud experts, have, uh, starting with Paul Vinny in the early 20th century, have advanced an argument uh, based on these various artistic images or representations of Jesus. And they notice that they share various odd or unlikely features with the shroud man as he appears on the Shroud of Turin, thus suggesting they must have had some sort of common source, um, namely the Shroud of Turin itself, 
that served as the basis for all these common features that show up. Uh, this is called the argument from art history in Shroud Studies. And really, Shroud, the Shroud historian Ian Wilson, uh, as well as uh, the scientist Dr. Alan Wanger, STIRP scientist Alan Wanger, have done the most extensive work in thoroughly documenting and advancing this type of argument or line of argumentation. As I said, using various images from Christ, of Christ dating from the 6th century all the way through to the uh, 13th centuries AD. So if this argument is true, basically this would place the centuries centuries further back than the radiocarbon 14 date or the Shroud Skeptics claims that the Shroud is medieval. This argument would totally, if true, destroy the Shroud Skeptics case. There's no recovering the the uh, you know common skeptical claim that the Shroud is just a medieval fake. So you know let's there's no reconciliation. Let let's see if we can establish it. What what are some of these um, odd features I'm talking about? And in order to understand what we're going um, what we're going to be arguing here, it's important to recognize the the way the argument operates and to understand that historically, prior to the sixth century, the artistic depictions of Jesus Christ. Uh, really varied considerably. We we didn't have a, a clue what Jesus looked like. We there's so much variation from the standard traditional likeness of Christ of Jesus that we know today. You know the long hair, having the beard. You know, honestly, with some notable exceptions, the vast majority of artistic representations of Jesus prior to the sixth century, prior to the you know the mid 500s A.D really depict Jesus as a young, clean-shaven man with short hair, you know, really portraying the Greco-Roman style, as it were. So, you know, what's weird is that for some reason, at some point during the 6th century, these variations in depicting Jesus in a non-traditional way abruptly stops out of nowhere, and they become uniform. You know, we have an established traditional image of Jesus, you know, the, the one with his long hair parted in the middle, falling down to his shoulders. Um, he now has a, a forked beard in Byzantine art, thin mustache which will droop to join that beard. Also, Jesus' face gets longer with a more pronounced nose. Um, his eyes become deeply set, almost owlish and, and, you know, open and, and very owlish in their depiction, which is quite quite a weird uh, thing to to just start painting with no reason. And also, finally, he's Jesus is portrayed uh, with his countenance firmly set in a rigid, front-facing, you know, attitude or manner. So, really, this, this serves as the foundation for what becomes the established traditional image of of Jesus Christ that all subsequent depictions of Jesus really try to emulate uh, up until the present day. But, you know, this raises the question, why the heck did these depictions of Jesus become so entrenched so abruptly in the 6th century? Uh, why at this particular time? Why, why not before? Uh, why didn't we see an evolutionary trend uh, of becoming more, increasingly more and more standardized or traditional? It's, instead, we just get this abrupt change after which all paintings follow this formula. And pro-Shroud proponents uh, claim that the Shroud of Turin was lost for a period of centuries. This is another gap in our understanding that we'll, we'll deal with in part three a little bit. Um, but at some point in the 6th century, Shroud historians will claim that the Shroud of Turin was rediscovered in Edessa uh, after uh, an earthquake that took place, but it was instantly recognized that this was the authoritative image of God incarnate, or the image of Edessa, um, that really served as the prototype image for 
what was known, what later became known as the Christ Pantocrator icon throughout the Eastern Byzantine Empire uh, throughout the 6th through 12th centuries. So this, this sort of accounts for why, this is what shroud historians try to, to argue here. So, you know, without, what are these common features that I'm, I'm talking about that are picked up by shroud historians as being present in various artistic works throughout the 6th through 13th centuries, and that all of which um, just happened to be on the Shroud of Turin's uh, Christ image? Well, the first is that there is a tr transverse line across the forehead. The second is that there's a three-sided square between the eyebrows of Jesus. Another is that there's a V-shape uh, at the bridge of the nose, and another V-shape, uh, this we alluded to in the Hungarian Prey Manuscript, uh, within the three-sided square between the eye. Also, uh, Jesus' right eyebrow is slightly raised. He has accentuated or bruised left and right cheeks, uh, an enlarged left nostril. You know, there's a, a hairless area between his lower lip and the start of the beard. Uh, I, I also mentioned with the beard that it's forked. Um, and actually, uh, Gary Habermas describes this in a humorous way. It's not as though Jesus has, you know, he's a hipster or something. He's a mod, he's got some kind of a modern goatee. But it's it's when the face, the beard was tied, when the, the face or the jaw was tied, uh, basically strands of the beard poked out from the strip, causing it to appear as though it's a four beard, like sort of some, some kind of modern goatee type style. But that's, that's not actually the case, but um, that's just why it appears that way. Most importantly, there's also a transverse line across the throat. And this is weird because this is usually interpreted in the artistic paintings as, an un, as a hem in Jesus' clothing or garment around his neck. Uh, obviously, we know with the Shroud of Turin, um, he's naked, and there there is no reason why this line is across the throat. And you know, so the artists, if they were copying the Shroud with the naked eye, wouldn't really know what this was, and they probably would have interpreted it as a, a hem or an unnecessary fold. Um, you know, this this fold is unnecessary. There's no artistic reason to to put a fold in a garment around your neck. So it only makes sense really if you're copying something you think is an authoritative image of Jesus and trying your best to make sense of something but ultimately misunderstanding it. Again, there's these large open eyes. Uh, they're quite owlish in nature as I, as I mentioned before. And what's interesting here is with the Shroud of Turin, the Shroud Man's eyes are actually closed, but they don't appear that way to the naked eye. So if, if the, these people were using the Shroud of Turin, these artists would have thought, oh my goodness, he has such big eyes, open eyes. But it's only through the photographic negative images with modern camera technology that we actually know that the shrouds are not open, but they're closed. Also, there's the final thing is that there's two loose strands of hair falling from the apex of the forehead. Now, I said that's the final thing. There's actually a whole list of other, other features that have been uh, categorized by shroud historian Ian Wilson. I just wanted to focus on these main ones to show you, you know, just give you a sense of how much comparisons that are odd and would not be expected to be painted or copied by subsequent artists uh, that we have between the Shroud of Turin and between these artistic paintings throughout the centuries. These, as I said, these are just some of the features that have been documented so far, but um, you know, really I want to get this across to you that there's no known artistic or theological or cultural purpose as to why these odd features are being duplicated in so much of the art. You know, many many of the features are, based on our knowledge of the Byzantines, are, are not just irrelevant, but 
they actually serve to detract from the naturalness or the aesthetically pleasing nature of Jesus' fate. You know, it, it's just inexplicable why multiple artists would choose to depict these features unless they had some kind of common source that was thought to be an authoritative representation of Jesus. And I, I think we should suggest that that's going to be the Shroud of Turin. But it's important also to notice that not all of these anomalous features show up in every single painting we have. It's only some of these appear in some paintings, but not in others. Uh, other features that appear in other paintings don't appear in others. However, all of these features are common to the Shroud of Turin. So this just reinforces the belief that the Shroud must have served as the inspiration for these paintings. Uh, some artists picked up on some features while others missed out on others, but obviously this would have been because due to the fact that the shroud's image to the naked eye is blurry and it, it's hard to distinguish clear images. There are no definable boundaries uh, that we were able to see clear images of the shroud man until we had modern camera technology in the year 1898. So. In addition to these artistic paintings, we also have evidence from what's called numismatic dating. Numismatic, that's a fancy dancy word. What the heck does that mean? It basically refers to using coins. Um, so we have various Byzantine coins which depict an image of Jesus and his, Jesus' face. And they seem to have these odd features that we're talking about, these anomalies, artistic anomalies of Jesus' face on them to varying degrees. And again, these date back, the earliest of which, these, these were really studied by Dr. Alan Wanger. So he studied coins issued from uh, what's known as the Justinian coin. Uh, and that was printed from the year 692 to 695 AD. They also studied various coins from the 800s and, and 945 AD. And Alan Wanger also studied uh, uh, paintings and portraits like Ian Wilson did from the 6th century AD. So what's interesting with Wenger is he developed the process called the polarized image overlay technique, uh, where you can transpose one image over another in order to identify various comparisons uh, scientifically through this superimposition uh, or superimposed image being placed over another. And I'll, I'll provide some uh, sources on, on that uh, for you guys. However, the, the most impressive is the Justinian coins. Um, this is the Solidus coin. So the, these were the gold coins of the Byzantine Empire that they uh, provide, provided to pay their soldiers, basically. And these date from the year 692 to 695 AD. And these were among the f among the first, uh, really, uh, official Byzantine coins to bear the facial image of Christ. And interestingly, the these are the ones that by far had the most points of comparison or odd correspondence features shared with the Shroud of Turin man's image, facial image. It, it's been scientifically shown they have anywhere from about you know seventy to hundred, as much as even approximately two hundred comparable features have been identified, thereby this would place the Shroud, if, if this does establish a link with the Shroud of Turin, this would place it to the late 7th century, centuries beyond the Carbon-14. What did Wenger do? So basically, Wenger mentioned he did his analysis in the early 1990s, and he lacked a statistical method for validating his findings back then. So what Wenger did was he basically used forensic criteria, the same criteria that cops use in order to prove that a suspect is guilty. Whereby, if, if you can find 14 points of comparison, for example, this is sufficient to establish the same source 
for monotypic images. So this is, these are things like fingerprints. More relevant for us is that with 45 to 60 points of comparison, this is sufficient to establish the same source for a polytypic image. And so this is something like a face. Police can match a high school portrait to a police suspect on a, on a video camera or something. As I said, the, the Shroud of Turin, it's been identified that we have well more than 60 points of comparison, between 70 and 200 somewhere points of comparison. So I'll, I'll just read uh, a quote from Wanger. So he says that from his study, the Byzantine Old Solidus coins produced by Justinian II between 692 and 695 were the first to bear the portrait of Jesus and were struck as numismatic icons. Now, the face images on these coins are only 8 to 9 millimeters in height, but through the use of his polarized image overlay technique, he shows them to be remarkable images accurately derived from the Shroud of Turin's face image. The first coin that they examined had 145 points of comparison in the facial image alone, including from bloodstains, wrinkles, and large numbers of flower-like images, which on the coin are very tiny. The, the Shroud of Turin has some secondary flower images uh, on it that some shroud shrum shroud experts say are present there as well. So the second coin that he studied all had about 188 points of comparison uh, with the face of the Shroud of Turin. So it, it seems like, again, we need this common authoritative source from which the people that made these coins as well as the artistic representations are using. The best candidate for that so far is the Shroud of Turin. But just uh, going further, this research has been advanced uh, by shroud researcher Giulio Fonti. Back in, tw in 2015 uh, AD, he performed an extensive numismatic uh, investigation, which included investigation of these Justinian coins. And he basically provides an in-depth presentation of the tight correlation between the shroud and the numismatic characteristics of this coin. Their, their study uh, included exacting an exacting evaluation of an extensive list of what they call coincidences or what we're calling these odd features. And they performed a statistical evaluation on the whole set of the coincidences on all the various images they found and report that in their study, their statistical calculations returned a certainty greater than 99.99% that the shroud must have been the model for these Justinian uh, coins, which date back to 692 to 695 AD. This, this is incredible uh, evidence, and I, I will be providing uh, some sources for you to check that out based on uh, Fonti's research as well as uh, from Wanger as well. So, uh, you know, you can look forward to checking into that. Now, I can see the Shroud Skeptic pulling out their hair. Um, they've got some objections to this artistic or coin art uh, comparison type arguments. Now, the first objection is really ridiculous, but it, it's basically the skeptic tries to say, well, yeah, the Shroud, it's got these comparisons, no doubt, but the Shroud of Turin uh, copied from these artifacts, not vice versa. Now, this objection, as I said, it, it's utterly implausible because the Shroud of Turin is the only object that has all of these various features. These other artistic representations or coins do not bear all of the features that the Shroud of Turin has. So it seems that the Shroud of Turin really is, is wanting to be the common source that all of these other representations were copying. So, you know, it, it seems like there is this one source that's the shroud. And I, I think this skeptical claim is really a ridiculous 
tact trying to go to. However, there is a second objection that is a little bit more substantial, and this one is, okay, granted, I, I, it's implausible that the Shroud of Turin would have been copied by assembly, somehow assembling all of these images and copying down, for no reason, copying down all these odd, odd uh, facial features and that sort of thing based on non-authoritative images. However, what if there was a primary source, but it wasn't the Shroud? It was something else of which the Shroud of Turin and these paintings and coins were copying. So maybe there was some primary source itself, which is now lost, from which the Shroud and the coins and the paintings were copied. This is possible. This, this is plausible, I would even say, um, or, or at least more plausible than the previous suggestion. However, it, it does raise issues as to why this common source for the shroud was out was uh, lost without any mention. Uh, you know, it, it seems sort of ad hoc to when the shroud itself is perfectly able to explain all of this evidence without the need to postulate some imaginary source that was lost uh, or never mentioned or referenced throughout history. You know, it's, it's also questionable as to why no other burial shroud images were then likewise produced. Why, why didn't any other artists make burial shrouds copying whatever this mysterious primary source uh, would have been? You know, I, I just want to suggest that the simpler explanation, uh, Occam's razor, is that there is only really ever the shroud from which all these other images on the art and coins were copied. This, this seems more probable. In my, in my opinion, as to the explanations. So moving on to the next line of evidence, next uh, historical anchor point, as it were. And this uh, I'm really excited to present because this is by far the strongest and most concrete uh, line of evidence. I, I would even say I think it proves beyond reasonable doubt scientifically that the Shroud of Turin has to date back at least to the sixth possibly even 5th century AD, therefore totally destroying the Shroud skeptics' nonsensical claims that the Shroud dates to the medieval period. Uh, now, just to get a sense of what I'm talking about here, go to if we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 3 to 7, we'll remember that there was a second cloth seen in the tomb on that Sunday morning after the crucifixion when uh, the apostles Peter and John ran to the empty tomb. It, they didn't just see the linen cloths, they also saw a cloth that had been on Jesus' head. And this is what the second uh, historical evidence is about. It's it's a cloth known as the Sudarium of Oviedo. And what the Sudarium of Oviedo is, it's a small, small cloth or blood-stained cloth measuring about 33 inches by 21 inches in size. And it, it resides in the city of Oviedo in Spain today. And it, it's historically known with absolute certainty that it has resided in uh, Spain at the very latest, at some point before the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula by the Islamic forces in the year 711 AD. Um, so, you know, its historical provenance at, at this point is historically certain and undeniable as being in Spain. It's it's also beyond doubt that it that we know it dates uh, prior to its um, arrival in Spain, that we also know the Sudarium is first mentioned in the year 570 AD, so that's the late 6th century by Antonius of Piacenza, and he writes that the Sudarium was being cared for in the vicinity of Jerusalem in a cave near the monastery of St. Mark at that time. And then from that, we know that in approximately the year 614 AD, the Sudarium was carried from out of the east, uh, possibly from Syria or from Palestine, if it was still 
uh, being held in that cave, through to Alexandria, Egypt, and then across North Africa, south of the Mediterranean. We, we've scientifically proven it's never been in the North Mediterranean, um, through North Africa, and eventually to Spain. So, you know, it was basically being continually moved ahead of the conquering Persian forces, and then later on away from the Islamic uh, army as well. Uh, until it ultimately arrived in Oviedo, Spain, where it remains to this current day. So, you know, th this is historically confirmed as to the historical provenance of the Sudarium. There's no one that doubts these uh, these facts. In point of fact, uh, the Sudarium itself was radiocarbon dated, uh, and that yielded the date of around 700 AD. I know some uh, Joe Nickel, a shroud skeptic Joe Nickel, takes us takes uh, pro shroud proponents to task. Well, this Sudarium that you're claiming is somehow linked to the shroud dates to the 700 AD to the 8th century. That's obviously nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, but what he doesn't get is that actually there there are plausible methods. I mentioned Rucker has um, through his neutron flux hypothesis is able to conclude statistically that it actually does date back to Jesus, just as we would expect if there was a neutron flux, we would get radiocarbon date around 700 AD. However, the radiocarbon scientists themselves, who are a lot more honest than the 1988 uh, radiocarbon scientists, or the, or the leaders of that group, they admitted at the same conference at which their uh, data was presented that it was noted that in actuality, this cloth is has a definite history extending back to approximately 570 AD or earlier. So they're admitting their results are off and that it shouldn't be taken as a definitive time frame. The, the laboratory noted basically that the, there could have been some later oil contamination, which resulted in the late, uh, the later dating there. Um, so uh, yeah, I, th I think this in the first place is some incredible evidence. And um, as I said, it, it refers to the Gospel of John chapter 20. It's the head cloth. Um, is what we're trying to say, what this sudarium is. Because the, the most common interpretation is that this was a cloth that had covered Jesus' faith, face while he was lowered down from the cross in order to preserve, preserve his dignity uh, as he was transport, transported from the site of the crucifixion to the empty tomb. You know, basically covering his face with a cloth would have been in accord with the Jewish sensitivities uh, of that time because the cloth would have likely have become soaked with blood. Uh, it would therefore have to, according to Jewish burial requirements at that time, it would have had to have been placed in the tomb with the body, just as the Gospel of John uh, confirms. So now, how do we get the Sudarium of Oviedo? This is all fine and, fine and dandy, but how do we get this uh, linked with the Shroud of Turin then? Well, incredibly, there have been so many coincidences or... or um, features proven through forensic medical evidence which support the conclusion that the sudarium shares various uh, pre- and post-mortem blood stains and other fluids which can be mapped in their specific size, shape, and location to where they appear on the Shroud Man in the Shroud of Turin. And as well, there's plenty of other comparisons as well, but th this lends support to the claim that the sudarium is the same face cloth that covered um, the same human being who was placed in what became known as the Shroud of Turin. Um, what's interesting is that the Shroud of Turin is only known historically uh, to lie north of the Mediterranean. So uh, I'll get into it a little bit later, but there's also pollen. So we know that the Sudarium was only ever south of the Mediterranean. It was never north of the Mediterranean, whereas the Shroud of Turin 
is known to never have been south of the Mediterranean. So th this means that if they are linked, the only place geographically they could have been in the same place in order to cover the same person would be in Jerusalem or in Judea, in Palestine. That's the only place where these two objects, based on their known histories, had a common, were in the same place at the same time in order to cover the same human body. Um, so just to read uh, some of the coincidences that have been found, I, I alluded to some of the blood stains matching precisely, but there's also the fact, so in terms of the blood, the first coincidence is that the blood has been tested and they both belong to the rare blood type or blood group, namely uh, being AB, the AB blood type. Also, they've calculated that the length of the nose through the pleuroedema fluid uh, that came out of the mouth and nose as he was being, as presumably as Jesus was being lowered from the cross, is calculated at being eight centimeters uh, or just over three inches. And this is precisely the exact same length as the nose on the image of the shroud man on the shroud of Turin. So if the face of the image of, on the shroud is is uh, placed over these blood stains on the sedarium. As I said, they precisely match, and um, this is also with regards to the beard on the face. There's a precise coincidence there as well. Dr. John Jackson, using the VP8 image analyzer as well as uh, certain photo enhancements, uh, he's confirmed uh, the presence of a small stain which again uh, precisely matches what we find on the sudarium with the shroud. As well, the crown of thorns is on the sudarium and those wounds uh, precisely correlate with each other uh, from the shroud to the sudarium. And all in all, uh, Dr. Alan Wenger also came in, again, using his polarized image overlay technique um, to the sudarium. And using that, he, he's found about uh, 70 points of coincidence or correspondence between the shroud and the sudarium. Just so you know, I, I will present, I will provide uh, detailed links of all the tests that uh, link forensically the shroud with the sudarium, so you can research what I'm saying here and uh, discover for yourself if what I'm saying is true. Um, but just before moving on, there also, uh, there's also um, comparisons between the shroud and the sundarium that occurred based on dirt analysis, which again places it in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Uh, so what happened was in, in 2012, X-ray fluorescence testing um, was used uh, with a total on the sudarium by a team of researchers in about 57 different tests to grid out the sudarium as to where the highest content of dirt uh, containing calcium was found. And this corresponded to basically the tip of the nose and was mapped uh, to, uh, the congruence was mapped uh, to the Shroud of Turin. Uh, again, that the Shroud of Turin has been proven to have dirt at the tip of the nose, uh, on the knees, and at the bottom of the man's Shroud man's feet. And these dirt samples have been correlated to each other. And not only that, also from the very Calvary site in Jerusalem, they all seem to link up. So, you know, the, based on the chemical signatures of the dirt uh, on, on the sudarium, shroud, and the Calvary sample. So this is circumstantial evidence, additional circumstantial evidence uh, that's a little bit more recent, uh, again, suggesting the shroud and the sudarium were in the same region and uh, are 
you know, were linked with the same human being that created them. Now, I wanted to just briefly mention, I'm, I'm going to save this comparison because this is a uh, really exciting evidence and it's really recent. Um, basically, in, in 2014, there's been some interesting studies of the pollens that have been found on the sudarium. Uh, as well as on the Shroud, um, and which could actually place the Shroud of Turin as far back as the 3rd century AD or earlier. However, we're going to reserve the uh, third, the um, pollen evidence from both, both the Sidarium and the Shroud of Turin uh, for part three of our podcast. So we'll, we'll just uh, give it a brief mention. Uh, I'll provide some sources if anyone wants to do some advanced research. Um, but uh, yeah, ba basically to, to conclude from the forensic medical viewpoint, according to present scientific knowledge that we have, there would be no problem to convince a court of justice regarding the assertion that the Turin Shroud and the Oviedo uh, Sudarium enveloped the corpse of the same person. In a synthetic presentation, the following coincidences can be mentioned regarding the bloodstains. Uh, and these refer to, uh, you know, the various elements that I mentioned to you before. Um, so, yeah, the, the conclusion of these forensic experts is that there is not a court of justice in the land that would have a problem with the assertion that the Turin Shroud and the Oviedo Sudarium, Sudarium enveloped the corpse of the same person. Incredible. This this is proof beyond reasonable doubt, scientific evidence and proof that the Shroud of Turin dates as far back uh, and is linked to the Sudarium of Oviedo, in my opinion. Now, in terms of some objections that could possibly uh, come about, I, I must admit, I, I was really hard-pressed. This evidence is so convincing that I was hard-pressed to find any skeptical objections to this rather conclusive evidence to begin with. But I did find a couple for you guys to address. And, you know, the, the first was... You know, Joe Nichols trying to say, well, the date, this was in a CNN article he, he wrote uh, saying CNN's finding Jesus uh, disingenuous look at the Turin Shroud. And he basically just dismisses the Sudarium evidence with, you know, ignorant of everything about it. He just sort of said, yeah, but it, it radiocarbon dated to the 8th century. Therefore, we know it has nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, period. I, you know, the Shroud skeptic wins sort of type deal. But uh, I think we already addressed this is a ridiculous assertion. The radiocarbon, the Sudarium has a known history to date prior to the radiocarbon date. So the radiocarbon date is erroneous in some way, and that's historically known. Even the radiocarbon scientists themselves admitted this was the case and ascribed this to some kind of oil contamination, uh, or else we have Rucker's hypothesis, which says, no, they dated it. There wasn't, they dated it properly, but it's a neutron flux that was responsible for this erroneous date. Uh, however, apart from that, um, I could really only find a, f a couple shroud skeptics we're familiar with the evidence from the Sudarium of Oviedo. But, well, they don't really tackle the evidence, the forensic evidence linking these two objects. They simply dismiss it as part of a conspiracy. Uh, Charles Freeman um, came up with an argument from guilt by association, basically just trying to say that, well, uh, the Sudarium was held in the same box with other relics that we know are fake and legendary. Therefore, this must be that proves that the Sudarium is is a fake as well. But no, this this is just utter guilt by association. This this commits a logical fallacy known as the association fallacy. Just because some of the relics that it's been associated with are fake doesn't prove that this relic is a fake. This is just ridiculous 
skeptical nonsense and should be dismissed as such. Another argument is by the Shroud skeptic Colin Barry, and you know he basically thinks that a medieval felt tip pen was used to meticulously create the Shroud's bloodstains, uh, as we'll find out when we go over the anatomical accuracies of the Shroud. Uh, later on in this uh, series, uh, that's this is nonsense. Uh, it's scientifically proven fact. This is these this is real blood that's on the shroud. Um, however, what what does Colin Barry say? He basically denies that there are any correlations. He just denies, you know, that the scientifically proven evidence that we do have all of these uh, correlations between the Sudarian and the shroud. So. Um, as to that claim, I think it speaks for itself. It's it's garbage, but um, you know, find it for yourself. I'll be providing the evidence, the sources for you. You take a look at it and um, see if what Colin Barry says is true. If there are these correlations between the Sudarium uh, and the Shroud or not. So, in uh, closing, uh, I think we're just over the hour mark now. So, just to conclude part two of this podcast, what are some of the conclusions that we can get related to these historical anchor points or the pro Shroud uh, case? Number one, the Shroud of Turin via the Hungarian Prey Manuscript or Prey Codex can probably be dated as far back as 1195 AD or earlier. And it was the Shroud of Turin was seen as an authoritative representation of Jesus in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Number two, these uh, art or coin or numismatic history argument established that the Shroud images probably go back as far as uh, the 6th century AD and served as inspiration uh, for these other depictions of Jesus, which derived from the Shroud of Turin. Finally, number three, the, the Sudarium of Oviedo has so many comparisons that have been scientifically proven between the Shroud of the Shroud Man, and this establishes conclusively that the Shroud of Turin dates from the 6th century or earlier AD, uh, and also uh, links the Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium to the region surrounding Jerusalem. So, uh, I think that's it for part two. You know, as I said in part three, there there's a gap in our historical knowledge as to what happened to the Shroud prior to the 6th century AD, or the, you know, the 5th century AD, if you want to say the Sudarium dates back then. Um, so, we'll be going over that in part three, as well as trying to advance how we can get the Shroud's history and link it to the historical Jesus in the first century. Okay, have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye.